check your mics. Okay. I think I'm good. Okay. Right. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another week of the Pill Pod featuring me, Eric Tate. And we are down one pod member today. However, uh, due to scheduling conflicts, uh, Master Pills will not be with us. Just the <laughs> slaves Pills, for today. The Grand Pill Poopa. Exactly. So, uh, but we do have the uh, distinct pleasure of having a guest of the show uh, and a good friend returning to us today. Uh, this is Victor Hainaju, known to you folks as Lit Vic. If you've uh, listened to the previous episodes, he's been on. How are you doing, Victor? I'm doing great, guys. Good to be back. Great to have another Literature Corner. <laughs> great to have another Victor on. Always a party with the victors. <laughs> Always a party with two victors. Yes. And of course, we have politics Victor, Victor B, and Matthew. How are you guys doing? Hello. Not bad, not bad. Busy week, but it's been fun. It was fun to revisit this. Um, yeah, and listen, read the story again. It'd been a while. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, we have something prepared to you today uh, for listening to. Uh, that was a really good <laughs> sentence. Uh, so we're doing the. Edgar Allan Poe short story today called The uh, Purloined Letter. Uh, so it's a short story by Poe written around 1845, I believe. Uh, story featuring a detective named August Dupin. Now, before we get into the story, however, I think it'd be good to talk about why we chose to read a short story. Um, you know, we did our episode on Bartleby, and we really enjoyed it. And I think uh, you listeners responded quite well to uh, a kind of literature corner episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I think thing. I think it's also just. Uh, I mean, obviously, with Bartleby, there's a lot of our favorite philosophers who talk about Bartleby. Right, Zizek talks about Bartleby. We did that episode on Byung Chul Hang. He talks about Bartleby. Doesn't Deleuze talk about Bartleby? So there's like a lot of philosophical reasons. And then similarly now with Purloined Letter, Lacan has a pretty famous essay where he tries to show how the Purloined Letter can, which we'll get into maybe later, just as a demonstration of kind of the way the unconscious is structured like a language, is structured by symbols, and there's a kind of automatic effect. And somehow he uses the Purloined Letter to, uh, and I guess I, I only learned uh, from like revisiting this that Derrida has a response essay, which... We didn't read, but maybe if people like this episode, we can do like a patron episode or something and and and, and explore the Derrida uh, thing. But uh, yeah, a kind of literature fight night, fighting over interpretation, <laughs> literature philosophy, literature fight night. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that's right. As this is a critical theory and philosophy podcast, we uh, also like to take in literature because it's a uh, major stimulant to the development of philosophy and critical theory and psychoanalysis and all that good stuff. Uh, what were you going to say, Matt? I was going to say, uh, speaking of stimulants, uh, on the other end of the prestige spectrum, I like Edgar Allan Poe because he is proof uh, that having serious substance abuse problems uh, and fucking your cousin can take you very, very far in life. Uh, so Matt, Just what you always wanted. Uh, and secondly, <sighs> I want to ask on the other end of the prestige spectrum, uh, how many of you your, was your first encounter with Poe, that Simpsons episode, uh, where Homer is you know, reciting, oh no, what is it? Uh, the, Homer the, is in The Raven, yeah. uh, but I think it's, um, what's his name? The Raven James was Jones, definitely my first uh, encounter with it. Bart is The Raven, yeah. As always, it, it all goes back to The Simpsons, yeah. I think I've actually used that episode when teaching The Raven, so it's it's a touchstone. Never more, never more. But yeah, <laughs> uh, 
Litvik, <laughs> why don't you give us a little like historical context or background on Poe and like where is this story sort of situated within his larger oeuvre, if you will? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the other reasons perhaps we're, we're looking at it now is it was actually Poe's birthday last week, uh, January 19th, oh. I, I believe. Yeah. Oh, so, happy uh, birthday, what, Poe. what's the most melancholy drink that we can think of? Uh, <laughs> maybe absinthe. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's, let's raise a glass, first of all. Yeah. To the, ab, to the absinthe yeah, something, cafe. Something with opium <laughs> in it, probably. Yeah, yeah. Good 19th century style. Yeah, I've got a beer here in front of me. I haven't had a beer in a while. Oh yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah. So, because yeah, Poe's reputation definitely precedes him. Like we all know, as the famously turbulent, melancholy kind of Gothic writer. Um, and among other things, he he also had gambling debts. He changed his name to avoid his creditors. He was Edgar A. Perry for a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Shit. So, does that still work? It worked I'm in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> Just yeah. shaves his mustache off, and people are like, well, I'm looking for Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. It's like, no, no, this is Edgar Perry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you've ever seen a picture of this guy, it's hard to imagine him being disguised and unable to recognize him. He's got a very distinctive face, and I always imagine there's like ravens or something circling around. Above his head. <laughs> yeah. You are right, though. I mean, I went through a bit of a Poe phase years and years ago, around when I was 18, like everyone did. And I liked a lot of his short stories. I never got around to this one. And what was surprising about it is it really doesn't have a very Poe-esque feel. You know, it's a pretty straightforward, um, it's very much a detective story, but there's none of that gothic melodrama. Uh, nobody even dies in it, which is kind of Yeah, what's the, deal? what's the deal with that, Litvik? What's the story with this yeah. not being very melancholy? Well, most of his stories, they do deal with the macabre, the alienation of modern society. And I think the, the the way this story kind of comes into his oeuvre is that it still sort of focuses on questions of urbanization and modernization, right? So Poe is actually credited with inventing the genre of detective fiction. So he was always interested in short stories and poems like that. He kind of believed that any sort of work of art should be able to be consumed in just one sitting. And that was what sort of drove his interest in short stories for unity of effect. But then we get to detective fiction, which kind of comes from his broader interest in things like cryptography, like code breaking, and the sort of question of what, what it was called um, radiocination. So like tales of reasoning, as it was known back then, tales of kind of like deductive reasoning. And this was sort of like his actually his second story, I believe, with the character of Auguste Dupin who's this sort of French genius who solves these cases. And this was decades before even like Sherlock Holmes or any other kind of like famous detectives. So Poe was really kind of a pioneer in terms of this sort of short story and this kind of character. But one of the interesting things, like one of the reasons why this story does sort of stand out compared to his broader work is that, as you noted, it's actually not very sensational. It's very kind of like cool, analytical, almost detached in the way that it presents the facts of the case. And then sort of just walks us through it and we sort of see how the detective solves the mystery of the purloined letter. Yeah. So if you haven't read it, listeners, uh, I would recommend even just pausing and going, taking a look at it. It'll take you less than an hour to get through it. It's quite short and it's it's really interesting. Sorry, what were you going to say, Matt? No, I should say I really enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. uh, And it was a lot of fun in the same way that I used to like reading Sherlock Holmes stories. This is actually a question we were debating before you got here, Litvik. Uh, do you know if Arthur Conan Doyle ever read Edgar Allan Poe? I'm sure there was a kind of cross-pollination influence because this really did feel like a Sherlock Holmes story to me. Uh, 
except for the kind of big, long metaphysical uh, or epistemological interlude, which we can get to. Because, uh, you know, there's this kind of bumbling Lestrade-like figure who can't solve this case. Uh, it seems <laughs> yeah. extremely mysterious. He comes in and he's like, you sort this out for me. Uh, and of course, Dupé makes it all look so easy and he's really cool. And he pulls the letter out and he's like, here you go. Uh, and then they're like, how did you do it? And he gives this extremely elaborate explanation to it. And it, it really did remind me of a lot of Sherlock Holmes And this Watson-like narrator we get, too, very similar to, uh, yeah. to the yeah. actual it, it Watson. Really lays and out, I mean that in a good way, because I like both of them. So. Definitely, yeah. It, it definitely like lays out a lot of the tropes of detective fiction. I, I think Conan Doyle actually credited Poe's Dupont as an inspiration okay. directly for Sherlock Holmes, yeah. So there was a recognition of this kind of being the first model for these sorts of stories. Even, I think, Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, he kind of acknowledged that Porfiry Petrovich in that story, the investigator was modeled on Dupont. So this guy's sort of like the godfather for all detectives in the 19th century. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm dating myself by saying uh I yeah, I've probably first encountered Poe on the Simpsons. Uh yeah, fuck you. I was born <laughs> in the 80s. What are you going to do about it? Uh but an, another place that really got me seriously interested in Poe was was probably reading Nabokov's Lolita and the uh the central place that one poem in particular, the Annabelle Lee poem, takes in that in that novel as well, really sort of rekindled slash made even bigger my interest in Poe. But I think another really interesting sort of note, side note, is that Poe was very popular in France from very early on. I believe, I'm not sure, I believe Charles Baudelaire translated this story and maybe others into French quite early, which is the reason why, um, you know, it, I think it leads into why, you know, Lacan was writing about it, why Derrida responded, why it was so important that, you know, these philosophers and analysts will, will thought that this was material they should be writing about. It's because he was very, very popular. A lot of his stories are set in Paris, but they're also translated into French and read in, in France. So he's very, very popular there quite early on. And I'm not sure why that happened. Uh, I imagine... It links back to what Vic was saying about this sort of exploring the sort of macabre and the dark, the interiority and urbanization. Baudelaire was a real uh, sort of, you know, what we call them flaneurs, right? Those guys who love to walk around the city and observe and let their whimsy take them where it will. Yeah. And more broadly as well. Sorry, Matt. It's perhaps also Poe was himself deeply influenced by European romanticism, but in this case, especially, he kind of has this idealized French Euro European genius in the character of Auguste Dupont. So in some ways, like I, I think the French were quite pleased with reading a story like this in particular. There is something that's kind of classy or romantic uh, about setting it in Paris, uh, where he talks about these kind of gilded hotels, the fact that there's these extremely wealthy people who want this letter found, uh, that the political balance of nations kind of hangs uh, on the scandal that might be unleashed uh, at the letters released. So I don't know if you could get that setting it in a town in New England, you know, population, you know, 500, circa, you know, 1835 or whatever, right? There needs to be some kind of gravity to add to the drama of it. But I think it really works, right? There's this almost dashing uh, quality. And actually on, on the details of the story, I mean, maybe maybe one of us, I don't know, Litvik, I'm looking at you, can give a little plot summary of like, what, what are the main things that happen here before we oh, uh, for sure. start yeah. talking about too many specifics? Yeah, so one of the reasons why it is a little bit more glamorous is because the queen's letter from her lover or some mysterious person has actually been stolen, purloined by a minister 
who is also in the government. And so the police are kind of bumbling around trying to figure this out, as they do in detective fiction. And the local constabulary hasn't had much success, even though they've kind of searched the premises of this minister's house. They've searched every square inch of the neighboring houses. There's this sort of there's been this very precise mathematical search of every sort of area around there. And they kind of relate the details of this case to Auguste Dupont and to the narrator. And Dupont and the audience listens to the facts of the case. And then about a week later or so, or a, a month later, the police shows up again and Dupont asks them simply, do you want me to give you the letter? Because I've already found it. <laughs> so he solved the case without even trying, basically. Right. That's the very Sherlock yeah. Holmes, anticipating yeah. Sherlock Holmes, like kind of, uh, yeah, impressive. Yeah. Uh... I, I should say, unlike Sherlock, though, he does do this for a quite a hefty sum yes. of money. I think it's like yeah, 40, okay, to give him give him that detail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Sherlock Holmes would sometimes just do it to kind of show. Is that all right, Lestrade? I'll do this for you, but in return, you have to sit there and marvel at my genius for at least five minutes as I explain <laughs> to you how I unleash my deductive powers. Oh yeah, Dupin seems a little bit. You know, I want to do that, but I also want you know a fat paycheck at the end of this. Right. So, so in terms of the narrative, right, it's it's all, everything's already happened. The events have passed and they're being sort of recounted by this uh, unnamed narrator and friend of Dupont's. He's also in the story. Um, and then even the dialogue he's reporting happens, you know, after the theft of the letter. Right. It's it's been something like 18 months and this guy's been basically blackmailing the the queen of of France um with his possession of this letter to get you know he has power over her with this that's the that's the problem right and it has to be dealt with sensitively cuz the contents of this letter would damage the honor and legitimacy of the queen which we don't know by the way we don't we never find out the contents of the letter but litvik what so what happens how did how did dupin find the letter what's his yeah trick what's his magic well, that's a great point as well, Eric, because it is like, again, almost like this abstract narrative where everything is being like described and nothing. We don't actually see things directly. There's not a lot of action to begin with anyway, but we do have this intellectual distance from the events, as you noted, which is very important. And we also don't know what the letter's contents actually contain, except that it is a sensitive piece of information that the queen desperately wants to have returned to her. Yeah. So then du Dupont basically reveals to the narrator, who's kind of like an audience sur surrogate at this point, that... He sort of went through the thought process of the criminal's own mindset. He kind of tried to identify with this minister who had stolen the letter and thought about how he would have tried to outwit the police. And what he ultimately figures out quite easily for him, because he's this brilliant sleuth, is that the, the police's approach was completely misguided. Like they basically made a category mistake by even trying to look for the letter in hidden places. Because he knows that this minister who stole the letter was he was both a mathematician, but he was also a poet, as he notes. So he had this sort of balance in terms of thinking more creatively outside the box than what the police might have been expecting him to do. So long story short, what's the best place to hide a letter? It's on the on the mantelpiece, right? So it's that old classic cliche. If you don't want someone to find something, <laughs> hide it in plain sight. So du hidden in plain du sight. DuPont reveals how he visited this minister's house. He got he got him to look outside at one point on the street with some distraction, and he noticed that the letter was on the mantelpiece, basically. It was hiding there in plain sight the whole time. And he comes back the next day. He swaps the letter with a forgery. And so he he's accomplished this brilliant feat of both reclaiming the letter and not even telling the minister that like the letter is missing because the minister still thinks that the letter is there. It's been swapped. And it was all basically because he recognized like, the police's approach was completely misguided in this case. They didn't understand 
the criminal mindset sufficiently. And that's what opens up all the interesting interpretive questions about what were the police doing wrong and what does Dupont understand in this case that made it right? Yeah. There's one yeah. point that I think we should emphasize just at the conclusion, because it turns out that Dupont and the minister were enemies. Yes. Uh, they had had a run in before. And there was almost kind of a Moriarty feel to it, which I appreciated also because uh, Dupont is like, he outwitted me once. Uh, so now just to kind of do a little something for myself in this forged letter, uh, I left a little message for him. Uh, and then he refers uh, to two Greek brothers um, who betrayed one another frequently. And it ends with uh, one of the brothers, Atreus, serving the other's sons up to him as a meal without him knowing. Uh, and he's like, if this revenge isn't good enough for the one, it's surely good enough for the other. Uh, and I thought that was a nice little touch to end on. Um, about the only thing that I was a little sad about when it came to the plot, and this is just a kind of a pulpy point, is I like these kind of rivalries. You know, you think Moriarty and Sherlock, and I almost kind of want to see the villain play a more active role as some kind of sinister being. There but, it is, your your superhero like story mindset. Yeah, coming yeah. In. wanting <laughs> no, a little no, bit no, more 100%. action. Look at that. Eh? I wanted a little more man. action. Yeah, that the was the first only thing superhero. That <laughs> I, I, I will say that it was offset for me by this really extraordinary dialogue in the middle of it that we can come back to because I don't want to go there yet. Um, but yeah, I did definitely want something that was a little bit more like gotcha. A little spicier. Like, but that is a lot of shade I, that he throws at the end. Yeah, that quote from Greek myth about how basically, you know, a Atreus served up Thyestes' brothers to him at a feast or something. Like, there's a hint that the rivalry between these two men ran a little bit deeper than just this case. Yeah. Between Dupont and this mysterious minister. Yeah. Yeah. If you've, if you've dipped into uh, the Greek lore, you know that the house of, is it the house of Atreus? Yeah, yes, the house yes. of Atreus, not Atreides. I think that's Dune. The house of Atreus <laughs> is um, but the Atreides a storied family. Yeah. The Atreides are their children. So that's right. Yeah, there's some def there's some word borrowing there. So not we're not talking about Dune here. We're talking about Greek myth. Yeah, the 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 House of Atreus is a storied storied. I think I think Thyestes originally um, did something to uh, I this, here's the French word Detre Atreus. He did something to him involving um, was it seducing his yeah, wife yeah. or his, he, or his sister? He slept with his wife and then Atreus murders his sons. Yeah, and Atreus's children were yeah. actually Agamemnon and Menelaus. So the the story doesn't end there by any stretch. Yeah. So the the implication, I guess, being that the uh, the minister is Thyestes with his uh, first offense that was, you know, pretty bad. But but then, you know, here's this here's um, Dupin being Atreus serving him up his uh, the blood of his children or something, which is the sort of ultimate revenge. And that's what he's referring to in this in this little uh, note he leaves in uh, the fake letter, which he replaced with the real one and that that's actually a key point but we can circle back to the the fact that um he, he still thinks he has the queen's letter when he doesn't really i would like to say though that I, I do think this is a nice kind of little mirroring of their rivalry also because dupe clearly has a bit of respect for the minister and like you said victor uh it's heavily which implied one? that there's which one litvik Get it uh, right, okay? Jesus. I'll try my best to be precise. Um, <laughs> it's kind of heavily implied that there's a rivalry that goes a bit deeper uh, than just this issue. Uh, but he, Dupe also comes across as somebody who does have the mind, not just of a mathematician, uh, but a poet. And the kind of proof of that is, of course, uh, he leaves this little poetic rejoinder to his rival at the end. It's not enough just to kind of figure out the puzzle uh, that was left for him. Uh, there also has to be an element of art to it. Uh, so I appreciated that. I thought it did a nice job of kind of mirroring the two personalities of our protagonist and antagonist in a really economical way. 
For sure, yeah. If if they're not directly meant to be kind of like brothers, there, there is this sense of them almost being doubles in that way, yeah. That you kind of have to become, in some ways, you have to share elements of the, of the criminal mind in order to even solve a case like this, yeah. So that's what Dupont seems to kind of pull off in the end. Yeah, you know, I will say that one of the things I found, uh, like, reading the story is the detectives, like, don't they describe this, like, super mathematical process where they, like, they like used like a, a, a like some kind of geometry method where they like measured out the whole apartment and like went like literally like inch by inch like square by square or maybe it was triangles i forget exactly what it was but they used some method i guess i just yeah. like didn't i just don't believe that they wouldn't have found it <laughs> i just Excruciating i was detail. just like that is just not believable to me like if they literally did this triangular method and like and like sketched traced the whole apartment or whatever and and didn't you say find that. it or, this is an anecdote from my life, but my brother I mean, was I'm once just being an asshole, I guess. But. <laughs> my, but my brother was looking for his homework once. And because I was his older brother, I actually hit it on the table and he scoured the whole house for a day, getting really angry, being like, where's my homework? I need my homework and I need to study. And I literally was sitting right in front of it. And he asked me, he was like, I don't know. Like, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And then I finally gave it to him. So that can happen. I mean, my brother's a really, really smart guy. It's just I agree. It can it can happen. But I guess, I, yeah, I mean, I'm just or, I'm being nitpicky here. Obviously, I'm just saying that I remember thinking like, OK, so you use this like method and traced every single surface in the apartment, but didn't see it. But that's know. the that's the point, actually. It's like it's the absurdity of the method. Right. It's so exaggerated. It's so fantastical. They're like opening yeah. every book, checking every page. They look in the garden, like b between every brick, like the moss and everything. So it's almost like it becomes like Kafkaesque or like something out of like a Borges like short story about labyrinths or libraries. Like the point of it is almost to prove that like they were so off base, like they they, they had the best technology in the world. They had like forensic equipment, whatever. But because they couldn't identify with the criminal, they were never going to find the letter because the tools they were using for the job were not the right tools. Right. Yeah, right. That's... So I think I think isn't it. I mean, I, I take the point that, you know, you know, you can imagine that they're looking and they're obsessed with a hiding space, right? Like they're they're obsessed with like this idea that it's going to be somewhere really hidden. So, you know, it's true that they're using this method and then they're really just looking at a place for it to be hidden rather than like a surface. So I like, yeah, I mean, I, gr I grant that it's 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 definitely and we've all obviously I think also it's just kind of stimulating or kind of like working off of all of our own intuitions and our own experiences right where we've had you know if we wear glasses right you for you forget that they're actually like above on top of your head or whatever like we've all had that experience where literally the thing that we're looking for is like right there so it's definitely playing on that like very universal human experience i suppose oh yeah that's actually that's something i'd like to drill down in into the narrative uh before while we're still working on the vanilla level here and we haven't brought in any uh lacan um so yeah, that's a good, a great point is that, yes, if the, if they were using such a thorough method to search the apartment, surely they would have gone through the miscellaneous letters and trash and things that like the, the letter was supposedly hidden on a uh, letter rack above like a fireplace or something, somewhere you'd expect to find letters and somewhere th that you would then ipso facto not expect anyone to be hiding a letter, right? So this hidden in plain sight is is a big motif in the story, but it's it's it starts right because the the first time this theft is described when when the uh, when the um, prefect describes the theft for the first time, he says the what happens is that the um, what is it the queen has this letter and. Uh, 
and she's I guess she's she's read it and she's about to sort of hide it away when the king I guess some guy who's impl- implicitly it's the king who walks in first and she has no time to do anything but to turn the letter over and just sort of put it on the table as if it's just a normal letter not something she was going to hide and then of course the king's not interested in it they go and talk and then what happens next is this other guy walks in uh the minister who's only really named D minister D walks in and immediately um I guess he sees that the queen is anxious about this letter uh, and that the king hasn't spotted it. And so what he does is he goes over with his own letter he happens to be sort of uh, holding at the time, goes about his business in the royal apartments, um, puts the letter down next to the queen's letter, uh, does some more talking, you know, nonchalance, nonchalance, and then goes back at the end, picks up the queen's letter and leaves the other letter in its place, hidden in plain sight, but it's no longer the letter because he's stolen it, and he brings it to his own apartment. And then he proceeds to hide the letter in plain sight as he knows the police procedures. He knows they'll be coming after him. He even leaves his apartment every night to sort of make it easier for the police to investigate, right? And they, of course, they can't find it. And then Dupin, sort of divining all of this as the uh, story is being told, uh, goes himself and gets the letter by disguising himself as somebody who is maybe short-sighted with some glasses on. So he's able to look around the apartment. He sees like a crumpled up letter in the uh, letterbox, knows immediately that that's what he's looking for because it's not hidden. It's out in the open. And he, uh, w- what he does is he, he leaves his snuff box, pretend fake leaves his snuff box behind and leaves. And then, you know, meanwhile at home, he makes a facsimile of the letter. Next day comes a call in again says, oh, I forgot my snuff box, gets let in. They have another conversation. Uh, He's paid somebody to create a distraction outside, so there's a gunshot. Minister runs over to the window, check out what's going on out there. And in the kerfuffle, uh, Dupin secretly then swaps the uh, Queen's letter out for this forgery now that he's replaced it with, and then uh, proceeds to leave. And uh, he keeps the letter in his apartment and doesn't really give it back to the police right away. Kind of, uh, kind of waits for the police to come back to him. Waits for the prefect to come back to him, and then uh, he says that. Uh, get as soon as the policeman says, uh, you know, I'd pay my entire month, year's wage for this letter because the reward is so high. He says, Ah, well, if that's the case, then here it is. Get your checkbook out, and here you go. And so he sort of almost semi-dupes the the prefect into paying him 50,000 francs or whatever it is and then uh, goes on his way. So this this motif of being hidden in plain sight is kind of determined right from the beginning when the queen sort of has no choice but to just sort of leave it face down on the table, right? And then lo and behold, the sort of the that strategy is apparently exactly what needs to be done to avoid the police. So, you know, the the Minister D does the same thing. I also think mm. it really adds to the comic effect uh, of them employing these mathematical techniques to try to discover where this letter is, uh, to kind of obtain new knowledge, if you want. Uh, because the kind of irony is that they always knew where the letter was because uh, it was hidden in plain sight. And they walk by it a million times. Uh, and so all the kind of 
mechanisms and efforts that they undertook to discover it uh, were pretty useless. Uh, and it has this real deflationary effect uh, when it comes to our appreciation for these methods that I thought was pretty funny in a lot of ways. Uh, and there is kind of a lot of this in this story where there's almost the rug being pulled out of people's face, like uh, out of uh, under people's feet uh, when they start feeling a little too grandiose about themselves, including, you know, the detective who kind of sits there and is like, I'll give $40,000 for this because the money is so great. And then he's just handed the letter and he's kind of like, oh my God, I feel like a fool, but whatever. And then runs away in this kind of bumbling manner. Yeah. That's what's so fascinating about this story actually is that even though it was pretty much one of the first detective sort of short stories, it already kind of starts to subvert some of the tropes that it's laying out because one of the big appeals of detective fiction is kind of, you know, listening to the detective explain the case, like a, a magician revealing his trick, right? And the audience perhaps having guessed parts of it. But here, it's actually a very simple explanation. It's not terribly convoluted. The letter was on the mantelpiece. He just had to distract the guy. And then he took the letter and re replaced it. So what is actually kind of perhaps being probed here is not even so much the case at a realistic level. It's more the sort of it's the thematic questions around the case. It's like, why couldn't the police find a letter? What did they lack, which Dupont has? And that's what kind of brings us back to what you were talking about earlier, Matt, I think, which is how Dupont understands the limits of the mathematical mindset, right? Or kind of like this more positivist approach where you're just sort of logically looking around for where things should be rather than looking at the bigger picture. Well, this is a yeah. really, this is what I really want to discuss. I'll come back to you in two seconds, Victor. Because like, Fuck you. Sorry. <laughs> well, here, no, no, well, like, no, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. The, the thing is, at one point in uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's fiction, uh, Watson actually makes a list of what Sherlock Holmes seems to know very much about, right? Uh, very 19th century thing to do. And he lists all these scientific subjects uh, and, of course, his kind of logical powers of deduction. And he says Sherlock is really good in these areas. But when it comes to things like philosophy, art, and he lists a bunch of other kind of uh, humanistic uh, disciplines and interests, he says he knows next to nothing about this, uh, which is also echoed, I should point out, in the Benedict Cumberbatch series, right, where Sherlock is very, very scientifically motivated, knows nothing about human beings. Uh, and yet what's interesting about Dupin uh, is that none of that skill set was necessary to figure out this case, right? Uh, you almost get the sense that if Sherlock Holmes were put in there, uh, he would fail at resolving it because it's not clever uh, in a certain sort of mechanical way. Uh, what was really required to understand where the letter was, was what the minister had and what Dupin has, which is a kind of knowledge of human motivations, uh, in particular the motivations of the people who, who pursue precisely these deductive explanations to everything. Yeah, that's uh, a and good then point. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, Dupin is also a philosopher. Like, he has a really, that you would never see from Sherlock, right? Like, he has this really long epistemological discussion mm -hmm. at the centerpiece of the text that I can never imagine Sherlock Holmes saying, uh, and he almost kind of castigates people for approaching things in this way. It's really yeah. quite interesting to me. It's a, That's a great point. Bo both of those last points were good. Because, you know, the payoff in a sort of detective fiction, it's like, Litvik was saying is that like there's a payoff in the explanation at the end how how the person gets caught you know was it what was it, it was the dirt on the fingernails it was the blood on the uh, it was the blood on the shoelace or what, whatever it was it, it always seems to imply that you know in 
case of Sherlock Holmes, he has some kind of superhuman sensory capabilities. It's like everything in the room is immediately registers in his mind and he and he puts everything in his place. He has this superhuman ability. It's really, yeah. it like actually is show, very he literally annoying. has like a computer like brain and he just like this, this, this. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's he's almost like like a fleshy data who walks into every room <laughs> yeah. and can mm-hmm. just immediately analyze everything. Superhuman. But it, in this case, it's much more psychological. It has to do with motives, but also like Litvik was saying, it almost it almost goes onto a thematic, almost epistemological level in that this difference between the mathematician and the poet or the sort of what is just so blazingly obvious that you can't see it versus, you know, where do people go to look for things that are hidden? They go to the, they go to the details, right? Like that little game example he gives with the maps right you can you can play the map game you know you you play with two friends and you you get them to you say the name of a city or the name of something on the map and whoever finds it first wins and the way you can always fool the amateur is if you just say one of those words that's you know printed broadly across the map like something naming the continent or something and and it'll fool the amateur because then they'll immediately go and look at all the little cities and assume you've chosen some little obscure thing and then they won't see you know terra nova or whatever the big sort of semi-transparent word is that's printed across the map so the mathematical mind (laughs) always goes to the details divides up the space looks at every single last inch whereas the sort of poetic mind works a little bit differently the poetic mind almost works as like a bluffer you put yourself in the position of the other person and try to divine their thought process it's it's it reminds me a little bit of what he says in the Rue Morgue, right? In the Murders of the Rue Morgue, uh, Poe's other story with Dupin, that um, you know chess requires concentration, whereas something like I forget the other one, checkers or poker requires bluffing, because everyone has generally the same pieces, generally the same moves to make. There's less rules, so it requires bluffing. You have to know how to psych out your opponent or get in their head, right? As opposed to chess, which is very sort of computational. You just have to remain focused and play the best hand possible, play the best strategy. And perhaps to build on that just a little bit, yeah, what what it provides on top of bluffing is also this question of empathy, right? That's the diff- yeah, that yeah. that's what poetry and literature mm-hmm. more generally provides, which the mathematical yes. spectrum and the spectrum wouldn't. It's this question of identifying with the other person, which art would allow us to do. And that is where poetry comes in here. That's ultimately why Dupont is able to think like his nemesis here and solve the case when the police are just kind of looking at it like an equation or a puzzle to be sorted out. What's yeah. the significance of that? You're not going to cut me off again. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you get Sorry. him. Um, yeah, no. Uh, I, I just, I was just going to say, like, there's also the significance of that odds and evens game, right? Like where, where, where he's talking about um, in the story, isn't it? Isn't there like an odds and evens game, right? Where, yeah. where he's saying like. You know, he goes through this whole rumination of like, you know, if I if, if if he picks odds the first time and then I saw that he did and it's like if he's really clever, then maybe he would pick it again. And he like goes like, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. how many layers deep in he goes like four layers deep. He's like, if, but if he knows that I know that I think that he's going to pick odds, then the clever thing would be to pick evens or whatever. And it's like this whole thing that I don't know, it was it was interesting. And I think Lacan ends up eventually running with that somehow. Yeah, but. you can definitely tell that Poe was a gambler as well, just from the way he talks about that. Like He's clearly like <laughs> yeah. thinking like three yeah. steps ahead of his opponent. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's like yeah, a game a- of odds and evens. Yeah, yeah. It's like goes back to that, you know, going play remember playing, I don't know, rock, paper, scissors or something like that back in the day, right? You you try to fool your opponent. So the first time you choose rock, they beat you with paper. They're like so if you have a sort of simplistic opponent, which is always the assumption of the police, right? The mathematical mind is gonna use the average. They're gonna use the thing that works in the most cases. So if you have your sort of average opponent, uh, you can assume that, you know, if you play, say, next time you choose scissors and they choose rock, then that establishes a pattern. They say, well, I'm not going to choose, you know, I'm not going to choose this one again. I'm going to choose the next one. It's a little easier with odds and evens because there's only two options. So if you, you know, I go odds and then next I go evens, your opponent thinks, oh, I see the pattern here. And then they're going to follow that. You just have to double bluff them at that point. But with a uh, sneakier opponent like the minister, who's also a poet and a mathematician, uh, they're going to do something a little more unexpected. And so you need a method that is not, you know, working in the most cases for the average person and the and looking for the most like sort of dependable outcome. You have to choose a method where, I mean, in this case, it's going to be, you know, looking for the obvious, seeing what's right under your nose. But the poet is going to be able to empathize with whoever you know, is opposing them or whoever they're trying to entertain or whatever, they're going to sympathize or empathize with them and be able to sort of divine their next move and, 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 you know, fool that mathematical kind of calculative approach. Yeah, You know what this reminds me of uh, as an antecedent in that respect? It might even be less something like Sherlock Holmes, uh, which I think is the more simplistic uh, kind of genealogy could draw. It reminds me a little bit more of something like a Thomas Harris novel, uh, you know, Silence of the Lambs uh, or Red Dragon. Because uh, Will Graham, if you've seen the show, it's also really good, uh, you know, Hannibal. Uh, his superpower, to use Victor's kind of term, uh, is this kind of capacity for almost radical empathy, uh, even with extremely bad people, in that he can situate himself into their worldview and kind of understand their motivation for doing certain things. Uh, and that's what allows him to solve a lot of these crimes. Uh, not the fact that he kind of goes through them in this very analytically methodical way. Uh, and in some sense, it's as... Uh, he's actually a lot quicker at resolving these things precisely because he can do this than the people who take the more traditional approaches. And I think there's one other thing that we should note, which is that um, it was actually necessary for the minister to do this in these circumstances because he was aware that the queen has at her behest just vast numbers uh, of detectives who are going to be applying this method. Uh, so no matter how cleverly he tried to hide it in this traditional sense, one way or another, they were going to find it. They would tear the house down brick by brick. Uh, so it was precisely by thinking outside of the box uh, that he was able to get away with this uh, for such a long time. Uh, so there was kind of a materialist dimension to this also. But I'm not sure if you think that way, Vic, because like, it seems to be almost like this is a kind of psychological thriller as much as being a detective story in that sense, right? You really have to kind of get in these people's headspace. To get... All good detective stories are going to be somewhat psychological, no? Sure, but I mean, again, yeah. Sherlock Holmes... Yeah, deal with motivations, dealing with the most common denominator types of behaviors. It's just worth briefly noting as well that at, at this particular stage in like the 1840s, even the notion of this kind of crime was somewhat novel because 
modern crime didn't really exist before modern cities, right? And urbanization had just kind of picked up from like, you know, the, the late 1700s on this scale of like the really big modern cities, like even like a Paris or like a New York or Philadelphia in the States. So that's why there was this fascination with the criminal mind is because like these were really the first generations when you even had this kind of like, you know, the need for detectives, the need for this kind of, you know, investigation. Right. The term detective hadn't even been coined yet when Poe wrote this story. So a lot of this, which seems actually quite modern to us, was really like fresh and novel to the audience that, that Poe was writing to. Yeah, that's interesting. But I want to ask, what's the difference then between this poetic and mathematical intelligence? Because he really criticizes, like fucking is just scathing uh, towards this mathematical intelligence, not because it's bad, but because it's limited. Uh, and he says that a lot of the people who employ it, have such confidence in their abilities that they extend this kind of method to absolutely everything, even where inappropriate, uh, which kind of reminded me of the Steven Pinkers of the world. Interesting yes, so yes. There's an IDW uh, connection uh, for our listeners, if you like the politics stuff. But then he never really says, like, this is what the kind of poetic mindset uh, or poetic approach entails. Uh, he just gives examples of it. And maybe that in itself is telling because it's not a method that you can apply in the same kind of rigorous way uh, that you would logical kind of deductions uh or even kind of empirical inferences uh you have to have a kind of visceral sense for these things yeah i don't know if that makes I, I that's accurate, i was almost I reminded of you know the the friendly rivalry between analytical and continental traditions where you yeah, can maybe see why lacan like this story where you know the analytical mindset can only go so far but you have mm. to have you know the continental the more open-minded approach in some cases to actually solve these kinds of cases to interpret these kinds of texts so that might be an, an interesting way to kind of transition to the Lacan seminar as well on the story. Yeah, no, I think we should. I yeah. think we should. We yeah, should start perfect. start considering what uh, what is Lacan up to. I guess in in this seminar, uh, I don't know if anyone wants to take an initial yeah. stab. That's good. Um, well, yeah, I'd just preface it by um, by saying, you know, we like what then. What does this story mean? You know, what do we do with it? How do we interpret it? We we've obviously been offering sort of interpretations along the way here, and and talking about the context and and doing s some close reading of the text and looking at some of the major themes. But you know, I guess some of our audience may be in in university or maybe encountering situations where they have to write about these stories and how do you approach these stories? And obviously, the psychoanalytic lens is a major option to approaching literature. There are other ones, many, many other ones, obviously, but this one this one stands out with Poe because of, you know, Lacan being who he is and having written this really important seminar, which he places at the beginning of his writings, a clee um, as the opening chapter. So it, and it's constantly referred to in a lot of literature on Lacan. So it's something really important to get into. Now, Lacan's interpretation of the text is arguably, you know, not an interpretation of the text. Uh, this, I mean, this is something that's that I want to just open up as a question. Lacan, is he really interpreting this text or is he, to uh, use a line from the text itself, is he forcing this into a Procrustean bed to which he forcibly adapts his designs as in meaning is he fitting this text into a preset you know you know set of variables and then those variables the what being you know the unconscious the symbolic order etc cetera, etc cetera, are these variables just taking over and 
really the text is just illustrating something else? Or is he getting to some, what shall we call it, truth or deeper meaning that the text itself contains? That's, I mean, that's just, a, that's just something I want to throw into the air before we get into the Lacan part anyway. But uh, yeah, so what is Lacan doing with this text? Why is he interested in it? Any anyone well, it seems go like for he it? wants to it seems like what he's trying to do is use it to demonstrate essentially like the way the unconscious and desire functions like a language functions according to symbolic order. And I think he 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 makes some claim that the letter itself is almost like its own subject in the story. And 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 the, I think he, he uses the fact that the content of the letter is never revealed. And in a way, he kind of says the content of the letter doesn't matter because it's like the symbolic role that the letter represents that each character in the story, their position in relation to the symbolic meaning of the letter, like the symbolic and not in the sense of like the meaning behind it, but just like how it works as a as a part of a signifying chain kind of ends up conditioning the desires and the, the, the kind of automatic responses of each of the characters, right? It's like, it's like either there's a significance to it. So I guess one of the characters, like they think they have it. So their position, like they adopt kind of an automatic, uh, like position to it based on kind of it's, it's, it's place in the symbolic chain. I don't know if, if, if maybe someone can clarify more. Yeah. And the word, the word automatic there is, is well chosen actually, because, uh, Lacan is actually engaged in a sort of commentary on, um, the repetition compulsion, which he actually calls here the like automated repetition or something like that. It's, it's kind of that, that, um, uh, that idea where if you suffer a traumatic event, right in the, in the future, you, you, you repeat that event over and over in your mind again, right? You have flashbacks, you have dreams, or it manifests as other kinds of neuroses, right? It's like you're constantly reliving the trauma. And Freud originally is asking questions about this, saying, so what does it say about the pleasure principle, right? If, if everything we do is driven by the pleasure principle, then clearly reliving events of the past that are very stressful to us is not following the pleasure principle. So maybe we have to find something beyond the pleasure principle, with, aka the death drive, which is, he, he goes on in that text beyond the pleasure principle about the death, the death instinct, I think it's better called, um, is that is what appears instead of this. And, and so Lacan is, is doing a kind of extended commentary on repetition compulsion and the death drive. And for some reason, he sees this text as exemplifying that repetition function because the text sort of nicely divides into a repetition, right? The first scene, you know, you have the queen, king, and the minister, and the minister steals the thing. And then in the second scene, you have the, the police, the minister, and Dupin, and Dupin steals the letter. And then you actually even have a third repetition at the end that Lacan kind of shoehorns in there. I don't know if it's really legit, but there's at least this double structure of repetition in the text. So he sees this as somehow exemplifying something that Freud was trying to get at that maybe he couldn't quite get at because Lacan has the uh, tools of semiotics now at his disposal, <laughs> right, where he can refer to the signifier. So what is the signifier doing here? The way that I read this from a Lacanian perspective was actually that this is kind of a tragic story uh, in some respect because 
What seems to occur is the symbolic order uh, of the big other is disrupted uh, by the withdrawal of this letter, which in and of itself has no content. Uh, and precisely because it has no content, it can serve uh, as a kind of ideological point where people invest it uh, as the kind of locus point uh, that holds everything together. Uh, and they're really worried that if it disappears or if it's used a long way, everything's going to fall apart. And at the end of the story, uh, the letter is given back to the person who originally created it. Uh, and the kind of harshness or danger to the symbolic order is withdrawn uh, and it's stabilized and the monarchy kind of goes on. So I kind of read it as almost a, kind of a kind of a mocking uh, analysis of authority from that perspective. I'm not sure if that's the take he makes, but I mean, I I, I always kind of read the 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 point of the Purloin letter. I mean, it's been a while. I, I I this is me revisiting it since I think I I did an independent study in my fourth year undergrad, and I remember one of the essays I read with my professor was the Purloin letter, and maybe the first ever essay for, of Lacan that I read. And I, it's funny, I was like, re, I, I revisited my notes from, from when I wrote that. Uh, like, so I found the Word document with like my, uh, like, like my thoughts and reflections on my, and then my initial fresh engagement with Lacan for the first time. And it was kind of cringe, but also like, but also I was like, oh, didn't, didn't actually read too bad, as bad as maybe I would have expected it to. But I guess one of the, the, the takeaways I got was sort of the way the symbolic function, like it leads to a sort of like determinism. I, I guess I read like a kind of determinism that like what a signifier represents in the signifying chain just like determines our reaction to it. And I think he uses in the text this whole game of like pluses and minuses as like um, an example of like, I guess that evens and odds game. Like, I think he connects those two things. And like the idea, I guess, is like, let's say you have a sequence where it all comes up even or then it's a mixture or then it's like odd, odd, and then even. And it's like each of those sequences, you can then decide to like symbolize as meaning something. And like by doing that, like there's certain possibilities and things that can't happen. So I think like if you if you set those rules, I'm probably not explaining it that clearly, but like if you set up some rules where like, you know, this number of evens, this number of odds, then like it becomes impossible for a certain sequence to follow another sequence because like the rules you've set up of like what those different sequences mean kind of determine what's possible to come next. And I think the idea is that like because the letter represents like uh, it has a, sig a significance to it that is it's just like it kind of is going to lead to a determinism of like the way people are going to react because what it represents and not just that but also like. I think even like the role of like the king and queen, like their role, they're, they're signifiers, right? They mean something. And it's like, and that, that determines their reaction to these other signifiers. And in a way it's like the chain points to a sort of like predictable pattern of behavior that is just, it doesn't matter what the actual letter is, but rather it's relation to other signifiers that matters, right? So it's like the fact that the signifiers relate to each other in a certain way, what they actually mean kind of like at an analog level at a substantive level like doesn't matter it's just like what they mean in relation to each other that then like determines the series of events and that's kind of like how he wants to argue our unconscious functions um, yeah that's what i mean i Zizek wrote an essay about lacan's take on this which is why nobody actually knows what the content of this letter is it's sometimes implied that it was about a fair uh, as eric said but we never actually something know. spicy anyway yeah but. something bad enough that people were invested in it um, but it's situated in this kind of matrix of power where we do know that the kind of social regime as it exists uh, in France in the 1830s, by the way, where the monarchy was in tempestuous straits, right? So that's also important. Uh, and so everyone invests it with a great deal of significance, even without knowing what's in it, because they're concerned that it'll bring the whole administration down, right? Uh, and 
there's this kind of weird paradox in the fact that we aren't aware of what's in the letter, but we do know somehow that it's dangerous, so we can't allow it to get out, even though we don't know what it is. Uh, and at the end, there's this kind of restoration of the status quo uh, by taking away the thing that we didn't actually know the content of, uh, but we just realized it was kind of gap in the symbolic order that couldn't be allowed to get out. And now everything's smoothed over. So that's Zizek's take on the cause take on this story. <laughs> but I think that might also be, I think further. that might almost be reading it in too political a dimension. Yeah, it's way too that, political. Like this is this yeah. is much more just a point about like signifiers like our unconscious being determinate by these by like what a role something plays. Like it doesn't actually you're already right. go, I think you're already going too deep into like the meaning of it rather than just like the how is the how is this showing that like somehow unconsciousness or the unconscious and signifiers like determine each other and it's like you know whether like that i think i don't know so i think it's 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 a, it's a step kind of it's a more it's a more formal perspective than like adding right. the political content to it or like the desire content to it that's kind of my understanding so he's just kind of saying like this story emulates the structure of the unconscious or demonstrates the structure demonstrates of the, the way signifiers like determine okay. other signifying chains together um i don't know anyone else have uh, Lit yeah. Vic, can you uh take us a little further no definitely or i don't know if I, you had a chance yeah to read this. yeah i had a look at it yeah and i think what makes it such a useful story for someone like lacan is that it, it puts the focus much more on the observer than on the observed so the other lacanian aspect here might be you know dupont as a psychoanalyst and minister d as the as his subject the analysand right in that sense where he there's sort of this potential possibility of like the, the the psychoanalyst never really being able to sort of you know put away his own perspective or his own biases and, and projections onto the person he's analyzing or onto the text that he's trying to read right and that interesting question more broadly about in interpretation and the way in which you can never again get to the actual objective truth of the matter you never actually know what's in the purloined letter because you're always your very sort of like observation of the case, your very sort of interference with it changes something about what what you're looking at. So I think that's what makes it so interesting for Lacan to consider as well, and for him to kind of riff on as well in the way that we've been talking about. And that does explain some yes. of the comic effect in the uh, part where they are going through trying to figure it out, right? Because even they know they don't know what's in the letter, they're investing it with so much significance, even not being unaware of its content, and they're tearing this hotel down uh, in order to try to find it. And that right? says more about them than it does actually about the letter or the minister. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it says yeah. more about them, and it says more about the position that they're adopting in relation to the letter as like a kind of signifier and 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 their own uh, their own kind of like position in that matrix it's a demand it's a it's a it's an attempt to demonstrate uh like the kind of the function of these things well, i can i can sketch out one of the broader outlines quickly and see what you think um, that'd, be, that'd be good so so uh as as you know you know lacan is taking in the idea of the Saussurian sign here, which is divided into two parts the signifier and the signified uh, so you know the the signifier in this case will be the letter, and uh, the signified would, you know, be the meaning of the message contained in the letter. But of course, Lacan's Lacan's point with his whole um, barred signified thing is that we, you know we never really get to the signified. What we're really left with is a chain of signifiers, and that chain of signifiers constitutes the symbolic, you know, which which we enter into at some stage of our development, right? So the symbolic is you know when we acquire language, um, but the general I think outline of this um, is that 
you know, this chain of signifiers is determinative for subjectivity, right? You are determined not by, you know, what you learn in your life, not by whatever's innate or natural to being a human. You're determined by the symbolic realm. And this story, in a way, demonstrates that because you have this sort of signifier that goes on this little adventure, this letter, the signifier. And of course, he plays on the difference between letter and as in like a, the letter of a word and letter as in like an epistle, a message, a letter in an envelope kind of letter um, to say that, you know, you the signifier goes on this adventure. And what it does is it determines these different subject positions in relation to it. So what you have in the first scene is you have the king, the queen, and the um, minister, right? And these three positions, the one who is blind is the king, doesn't know what's going on. The one who sees but thinks they are not seen, this is the queen, the second, the second position here. And then you have the third position, the one who sees, right? The one who kind of divines what's going on. And each of them sort of correspond to a different order, right? So the first position, the king is the real, you know, it's blind. We can't talk about it. We can't symbolize the real. The second is the imaginary, right? The one who sees and imagines themselves as not being seen. So, and then the third one is kind of the symbolic, right? The one who can kind of stand back and take account of this whole symbolic structure that's at play and then use it to their advantage. And so then the second scene happens and these positions, these structures, the, the sort of structures of these basic positions stay the same, but the characters occupying them switch, right? So if at first the uh, if at first the uh, minister was in the third position, the one of the the symbolic, now in this second scene where you know he's got the letter at his apartment and the police are looking for him and Dupin's going to come and steal it at, at some point, he's in the second position now. He's seeing, but he himself. He, he imagines himself as not being seen, right? Which is why when, you know, Dupin walks into the apartment for the first time, he's uh, he's affecting this, this romantic ennui, right? This almost feminine kind of disposition, which for Lacan harkens back to the new position he's occupying, which is the one of the queen in the first situation, right? And then the queen is now in the sort of first position, the one who cannot see, and the police being a kind of extension of the queen are, are doing this looking and they're not seeing anything, right? And then Dupin is now in the position of the third, which the uh, minister was in in the first scene. Now Dupin is in the third position because he sees what's going on. He sees Dupin for what he really is. And he knows where the letter is hidden. He sees all these things. And he uh, and, and so that that's what allows him to uh, then, you know, take advantage of the situation, get the letter himself. And then, of course, Lacan adds a kind of third situation because uh, when you're when you do uh, get yourself involved in this sort of chain of signifiers, you you end, you end up getting sucked in, right? So Dupin gets sucked into the second position. He thinks he's uh, seeing and not being seen. He imagines himself as uh, very clever. But then the third here becomes the analyst, right? That's Lacan reading the story. So you have this. This same structure that's repeated three times as a kind of compulsion of repetition, and each one is determined, each set of subjects, you know, the structure of the subjects remain the same, but the the uh, the characters in each position kind of 
shift between each scene, right? So this is what shows you something about the repetition compulsion, right? There's something in the symbolic. There's something about the way the symbolic works, this constantly, you know, signifiers don't refer to signifieds. We're going to get rid of this sort of meaning angle. All they really do is refer to other signifiers. So each displacement of the signifier brings out a new kind of, um, uh, the brings out a situation where the characters will occupy another one of these three basic subject positions in the story so that's that's the general sketch of what lacan is saying anyway sorry it was a bit long. that was great that was a great that was a great summary actually and i think it's it's, it's it was actually made me feel good about my undergrad self because i was like reading i was reading like one of my little like summaries uh from that from that um from that uh that independent study and like basically i said i don't know maybe i'll just pills you can decide whether you want to keep this in or not but i'm just gonna like <laughs> read a little bit of it because i think it adds to everything that you're and kind of what you're saying confirms that maybe I was right when I was this undergrad, but it says basically he is the, the present absence as, <laughs> as the characters shift positions on the signifying chain. They essentially take turns being displaced during the intersubjective repetition. The arrangement is controlled and decided by the placement of the signifier, the letter along the signifying chain. Repetition automatism is demonstrated by the story through the interpretation of the way each character upon acquiring the letter repeats the other's behavior the queen, right, deludes herself on the secrecy only to have it discovered and taken. Although the minister detected the queen's secret, he similarly hides the letter in plain view, thinking it will not be found out. Dupont is able to spot the letter in the minister's home and takes it himself. As the other two before him, Dupont will will assure himself of his secret, right? As, as each character moves throughout the signifying chain, they repeat the actions of the person before them, all while believing they will experience a different outcome than the one already experienced. Um, yeah, there you go. You... You were so much older then. You're younger than that now. <laughs> that's a great explanation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. It's a, so I think that's where I get the sort of, sorry, I think that's where I kind of get this idea where I'm kind of remembering that at the time, I think I kind of was like, oh, this is like kind of showing how like we're a lot more determined uh, than we think we are in a, to a certain extent by our actions or somehow trying to show that. Uh, no, I should say, I think that that's a really great way of explaining the essay. I, I am really tempted based upon the way that you've uh, like expressed things to actually adopt this kind of political reading uh, of the text. Oh, and here the we reason go. Is, no, no, well, well, the reason is because I think Zizek is right about the way that this text should be interpreted. Uh, because if you think about the chain of signification that's going on uh, and the subject positions occupied, one of the ones that's really important is the relationship of the queen to this letter. Uh, because this letter is invested with so much libidinal energy on the part of all these different subjects because it comes from the queen. But the kind of irony of all of this uh, is that the only reason it's invested with this libidinal energy isn't because of who the queen is, but rather what she represents. She's this kind of sublime, regal figure. And the irony is, if this letter gets out and it is what we all think it is, it's going to present her as a mere human being uh, and take away uh, this kind of sublimated uh, signification uh, that she occupies uh, because she's just a person like anyone else. She fucks around on her husband. Whatever the case may be. Whatever the case might be, right? So it seems to me that understanding that uh, is really important because what we have to, to see this, this story as is an effort on the part of everyone to keep this desublimation from occurring uh, and therefore re-ascribing the symbolic order with its kind of authoritarian significance. Uh, because if we have the queen appearing as just a normal person because this letter gets out, uh, then the whole thing won't be able to operate anymore. That seems plausible to me. <clears throat> that seems plausible to me. Well, I think it's also true that the letter clearly, like its its role in the signifying chain, has to be somehow directly related to the fact 
of how it's connected to the signifier of like regalness, I guess, in a way, right? Because like it wouldn't really matter if it was just some letter, right? Like like even though we don't know what the, the signified, we know that it's related to the other signifier of royalty. And I think like that that whole connection, that interconnection on the, is what makes it is what kind of determines the other reactions on the signifying yeah. chain. Exactly. Like I think the way to express this in Zizekian terms is that the danger uh, of this letter isn't to the queen. Uh, the danger of this letter is that it's going to reveal the fact that the queen is just a signifier, uh, that this particular person happens to be associated with it any given time. And it might beg the question of why she's entitled to this kind of auspicion uh, when she's just a normal person like all of us. That's not to kind of demean her, but uh, it does raise that immediate question. Sure. Uh, and there is kind of a comic element to this uh, where you see all these extremely intelligent people racing desperately uh, to try to keep this desublimation from occurring. Uh, to let the cat out of the bag, uh, if you want to call it that. It's funny that Lacan tries to pretend that he's like in the in the observer position as the analyst or something like that. That's <laughs> also I feel like philosophers just always love to like make everything in threes. So it's like I don't yeah. think he could stand it being like only like a like a double action. He's like, I gotta add a third. He's like, so I'm gonna adopt the position. That's yeah, true. the one yeah. who knows, right? I mean, and that's uh, that's again the question: Is it being forced into this procrustean bed? Sure, right? it is. It, sure, but, a little bit. And and I yeah I, I think it's an open question because I think we do learn something about the text when we when we talk about it in this way but we also learn something and that seems to be the goal of the seminar is to learn something about psychoanalysis as well right because the the unconscious is the discourse of the other what is what is that going to mean it, it's going to mean as a subject you are eccentric you are standing outside of yourself he brings in some of this Heideggerian terminology right you're eccentric you stand outside of yourself you're not you know, the subject isn't located anywhere. In fact, the subject in this situation is split between three different subject positions. So the subject isn't necessarily an individual. When we talk about the subject, it could be divided into many different kinds of positions. But if you want to remember the three positions, it's really nice. You get We get the politics of the ostriches, right? The first one is, has its head in the ground, can't see anything. Second one sees that and, and is looking at it, thinks, oh, I can see this one, can't see me. Then while the second one is thinking that, all satisfied with itself, the third one comes along and uh, pecks its ass, right? Picks, uh, plucks its rear, as, as, as they say in the text here. So those are the three positions. I'm going to yeah, add a like fourth that. wrinkle like to this. Uh, that kind of builds on what we were talking about, because there's one fourth person in this kind of trifecta that we have to acknowledge. Uh, not just the narrator, I was going to say, okay, so there's a fourth person, the author himself, right? Uh, because Poe himself seems to occupy a weird position in this chain of significations, because you have a detective whose job is, of course, to re-ascribe uh, the social order uh, with this kind of sublimated quality. Uh, but of course, you know, since we have a storyteller who's depicting this occurring uh, and deflating it in this kind of way, uh, maybe the person who's truly the radical in this whole process isn't Dupin, uh, since he seems to serve almost a conservative function, but the author who's chronicling this process, uh, who's revealing <laughs> to us uh, how artificial uh, and how libidinally invested uh, a lot of this is. So I don't know, if we want to get out of the rule of three, uh, to use Eric's terminology, maybe that's what we have to do, you know, break Derrida's rule and actually say the author occupies an important role in this kind of well, process. I'm, I'm curious. That's interesting. I'm curious to see what Litvik says about the narrator, though, because it seems like yeah, you yeah, had a little yeah, uh, I mean, thought about that. Just on, on Poe's role in all of this, it's, it's worth noting as well that he was sort of pragmatic about these kinds of stories. I mean, he actually was more interested in, in, in his, his poetry. 
he recognized that there was a mass market for these kinds of sort of, you know, mystery stories. And he was a little bit more, you know, like he pragmatic in the way that he even approached set mar marketing these things. So it's worth considering in that sense. But um, in terms of the narrator, I'm interested in kind of asking you guys about the Lacanian perspective there, because the conventional reading is the narrator is either like a surrogate for the reader or he's somehow representative mm -hmm. of, you know, America's relationship with France because Dupont is a Frenchman <laughs> and the narrator mm -hmm. is this sort of like unnamed American who's just in awe of this European brilliance. But is there any way <laughs> yeah. in which we could sort of bring him into the Lacanian framework where, like, I think at one point Lacan mentions that perhaps the narrator himself is the actual analyst in all of this and we're looking at this mm -hmm. the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, just to make the Sherlock parallel, I know that one of us compared him to Watson. I think I might have even done that. We Maybe a few of us did. And, you know, he does seem to have this function where Dupin kind of smokes his pipe at the end of it, you know, pours himself a drink and is like, you know, let me chronicle my brilliance to you. Uh, except, you know, Watson is sometimes an engaged character uh, who will actually do things and has opinions and has a life of his own that sometimes chronicles the stored stories. Whereas this narrator really is a kind of empty vessel into which Dupin kind of pours uh, his opinion. And yet the, the whole point uh, of the story is that there's no such thing as an empty vessel, right? that any observer inevitably kind of affects the outcome of what is being observed. So that's, I think, where the narrator does kind of occupy a more interesting place in this kind of tale than they would in any other more general story where yeah. the narrator serves an obvious kind of like literary function. But in this case, where we're invited to think so closely about the role of the observer and the observed, we can't help but kind of wonder if the narrator doesn't have a greater meaning in all of this. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I mean, it. It. I could see that the the narrator somehow being like the the analyst is an interesting idea. But yeah. I was also, you know, to to bring it back quickly, I was looking again at my notes from the undergrad, and it's funny. God, the professor that I had at that time was. I loved the way she did seminars. Like, so she had this thing where you would do the reading, and then she would make you write basically like three of the mo three aspects that were of most interest and agreement with you or three aspects and three aspects that were of most difficulty or disagreement and then at the very end her last question which was always very hard uh is basically like give a like sum up the whole principle of the reading in a couple of sentences <laughs> which is i think like a very useful yeah. useful kind of uh and I'm gonna I'm gonna indulge myself here and, and read read what I wrote for the for the for the like a couple of sentences summing up the entire seminar of the Proline letter. I mean, I don't think it's <laughs> Go particularly it. good, but I basically said in Jacques Lacan's seminar on the Proline letter, he uses the actions of the characters to demonstrate repetition automatism. Lacan achieves this by one, showing that that as each subject acquires the letter, their place in the signifying chain changes with respect to power, power over others, I put in brackets. Um Two, demonstrating how each character will repeat the action of the previous character that held the position in the signifying chain. Ultimately, Lacan wants to suggest that people's behavior and choices are constituted by and through the signifying chain of the symbolic and their effect on the unconscious. Right. I think the question that really opens it up at the end, too, is, is really just, you know, Lacan's famous last line is that the was it the signifier always reaches its destination, right? Yeah. And, and the idea is that like is that true, right? Does does the signifier always always reach its destination, or or is it an infinite kind of chain of signification that never stops, even when the analyst gets involved? Is that the last word? And mm -hmm. so maybe we shouldn't put Lacan in in that third scene as the analyst, but maybe the narrator as the analyst, because that would sort of keep the signifying chain going. We can then imagine the letter moving on and enter either sort of returning to where it's supposed to be and then 
going on another adventure or continuing on its sort of secret clandestine journey. I like that. The, I like but, that. But, Although I guess, I guess the one difference is that, um, because the narrator know, like Dupin knows that the narrator knows, right? So, and that's different than I think the, the other like relationships, right? Because the whole idea of like the third position, I mean, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but the, is that they have knowledge that the second position doesn't have, or they, the second position thinks they have the no, the full knowledge, but then there's a third position that has knowledge that the second position doesn't know. But in this case, the second position knows that the third position has knowledge, right? Yeah, and I'd like to add like one last wrinkle to this, which is that the real irony to the story, now that I think about it a little bit more and I've heard what you guys have to say, is that uh, despite the fact that a lot of it is about ascertaining uh, the riddle to this mystery, right? Uh, is that ultimately the fact that they've discovered this Perlurian letter allows them to occlude the truth of what actually happened, right? Uh, this isn't about revealing something to the public that it needed to know. It's about hiding something that did occur so that this resublimation uh, can occur. The signifier finds its destination, and in doing so, it once again casts uh, this kind of illusory spell over the symbolic order, uh, which allows us to rest content with it rather than be critical of it. Or what I do like about the whole way of thinking about it is emphasizing the way the symbolic chain is all about different signifiers and the way that they work in relation to other signifiers, right? And it's like, forget about the signified. And it's so it's like, it doesn't actually matter. Like the only reason uh, the signifier of the letter matters is because of the, of the way it's related on the signifying chain to the signifier of royalty um, and like its position in that chain. So it's like, you know, it, there's no behind that, I guess, in a way. It's like there's nothing behind that other than just these relations of signifiers and what role they play and how, like, their interactions with each other in, in, in the fact it's not about what they are referenced to, but how they relate to each other. And it's like there's nothing behind that is kind of uh, the way yeah. I sometimes think about it. It's just yeah. how they relate to each other. Yeah, 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 that's all good. I mean, it's the function of the signifier that yes. we're focusing on, right? And right. not its that's meaning, true. right? That's that's one aspect of it. So we, we don't know what's in the letter, right? And the other thing is that oh. it's hidden in plain sight. So this letter, which people can only read one side of, apparently, except for the queen who knows what's in it, but, you know, and the other people know what's in it too, right? I'm pretty sure the prefect explains the contents of the letter, but we do not know what's in it because... In a way, Lacan is saying it doesn't matter. And here's here's a big quote from Heidegger that cinches it. Um, I mean, Lacan's quoting Heidegger here. When, when we're open to hearing the way in which Martin Heidegger discloses to us the word aletheia, the play of truth, we rediscover a secret to which truth has always initiated her lovers and through which they learn that it is in hiding that she offers herself to them most truly. So you have this kind of secret element and the truth being out in the open you know the truth the truth reveals itself by hiding or gives itself over by hiding so that's the play of you know and, and the interesting idea that if the minister were ever to use this letter this power that he has over the queen it would immediately vanish right the signifiers are kind of spent in the using of them and they then the then the situation has to shift again. Everyone shifts positions. The signifier goes on a new circuit, and that sort of repetitive circuit again is is sort of the 
the essence of this re repetition compulsion is is to be found in this constant play of signifiers that are sort of indifferent to their signifieds because they hide in the truth and the truth is kind of hidden in plain sight but also secret because we don't know what it is but we know its functions right we know we know what's at stake we know who has power over whom and we know sort of the general outline of how this letter is causing so much trouble in this story but we just don't know what the fuck it says is it a lover is it a is it a some kind of political in incoming incoming invasion we don't know right we just know that she's got to hide it and the the father the law the king right that who must pass judgment if order is to be restored that that can't happen because the queen will be uh you know compromised so what do we do we keep we keep sort of shoving the uh signifier along and that's how you know that's how the unconscious works in freud's kind of explanation right condensation and displacement it takes on energy of other things and it and it's displaced it it is represented by something else so the you know the the phallus represents the signifier the signifier represents the the lack of the mother's phallus all these different sorts of displacements and condensations and, and the, the the signified is just fuck it fuck that we don't know what it means yeah and i think that's sort of the, the final take on all of this it's just like it's it's a really useful metaphor for textual interpretation basically right like the text is there in plain sight the question is, how do you interpret it, right? Like, what meaning do you ascribe to that text? So that's, I think, what this story is really useful in terms of getting us to sort of consider. Yeah, I like it. That's great. <clears throat> I think uh, these episodes, I mean, this is the second one we've done, but I think, I mean, this and the Bartleby, I feel like, are among my favorite ones to do. So hopefully we can do more and have you back, uh, Litvik. Yeah, man, likewise, likewise. Hope to be back soon. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of Definitely. fun. Definitely. Yeah, that would be great. All right, and uh, I think then we can uh, wrap it up here and say uh, say our goodbyes. Yeah, let's do this again soon. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Litvik. My pleasure. Yeah, indeed. It, it was an absolute pleasure. I love doing uh, I love doing uh, some Poe with you. And and don't don't forget to raise a glass ones. for our dearly departed Edgar Allan Poe or Edgar A. <laughs> Whatever his alternate ego was Perry. at one point, Perry. Perry. Yeah, Perry. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, good yes. time. All right, cool. All right. We'll do that. All right, everybody. It's been fun. Victor. This is uh, this is <laughs> Eric uh, taking over the father's position in this signifying chain for the time being. <laughs> uh, the good we'll stuff. see where the displacements lead us. All right. <laughs> <laughs>